Anyway, it's a blessing to be able to be here with you guys. And um, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open up there? And um, we are going to be getting through this text today. Um, I, was, uh, I was trying to figure out if I could actually get through this whole chapter. But after, um, after studying through it, I quickly realized that uh, this topic, that, that the book of Hebrews... Uh, begins in chapter 5 is too big to actually get through the whole chapter. And so we're going to be um, studying through what it means that Jesus is our great high priest, our great high priest. And um, so, so to begin, why don't we just remember back to why the book of Hebrews was written. We, we started this series a number of months ago, and I think it's important that we just remember the audience that the writer of Hebrews was was uh, giving this letter to. Actually, we don't actually know who the writer of Hebrews was. Do you remember that? We don't know. Some people think it was Paul. Some people think that it was some kind of messianic Jew um, that, that understood the culture during that time. But it was written specifically to a Jewish audience. These, these people that had grown up and, and were part of the Abrahamic covenant, the line of Abraham. There were his children's 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 children, um, and onward and, and on it goes. But basically, they had this unique understanding of the Old Testament, that they, they followed Yahweh God, and their fathers, fathers, fathers followed Yahweh God, who delivered them out of Egypt, brought them the Ten Commandments, and, and gave them a law and a priesthood, and, um, and told them how they were to follow him. And here comes Jesus, who shakes everything up and changes everything. And so the writer of Hebrews is actually writing to this audience, a Jewish audience, that is either converting from Judaism to Christianity, or they're, they're converts from Ju Judaism to Christianity that are trying to mix Judaism with Christianity. You understand that? So they're trying to practice Judaism with Christianity. Or, on the other hand, there's probably there's, there are people in this group that he's writing to that were actually rethinking about going back to Judaism, going back to the law, going back to Moses, going back to the prophets, and all these things that Hebrews talks about. And so the message of Hebrews is this. Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior. And we see that theme over and over and over and over again. And um, some of the things that we've seen already in chapter, chapters 1 through, um, through 4 of the book of Hebrews is that the writer is saying Jesus is, first of all, superior to the prophets. Uh, his, his, uh, he's, he's the fulfillment of the prophets. He is the promised Messiah. We see also in chapter 1 that uh, he is superior to angels, that, that uh, his name is greater than the angels, that he created and is over the angels. We see it go on to say that he's, he's uh, greater than um, Moses. We saw that uh, his rest is greater, his leadership is greater. Um, we even see that, that uh, in, in chapter 4 last week that he's even greater than Joshua, who brought their, their people into the promised land, that he is a better leader. And so we, we've, we've had this point hammered over and over again. Jesus is superior. He is superior in everything, in every way, because he is the Son of God. He's the promised Messiah. And so he's saying, don't go back. Don't go back to putting your trust and your faith in these, these great characters of Scripture, these examples, Abraham, Moses, 
the Old Testament law that only just revealed sin. No, put your faith, put your trust, put your confidence in the one who is superior, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we enter into chapter 5 today, and I want to just take some time to read it with you, and then we are going to explore through verses 1 through 10 today, and do, or we're going to have to jump a little bit into chapter 7 just to understand it, um, as well as back to chapter 4, 14 through 17 a little bit too. So, um, so let's, let's get started. Hebrews chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to read along with me. Um, I am reading from the ESV translation. Um, so if it's a little different, you know, if you want to pop it up on your phone in ESV, you can follow right along exactly how I'm going to be going through this text. So um, chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why don't we pray as we go into God's word. Father, we thank you that you've placed us here for this purpose, Lord, in, in your house. God, help us to see you, Jesus, as our great high priest, to realize how profound and how comforting it is to have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, you, Jesus, who intercedes to God on our behalf, who God is, is sitting at, at the right hand of, of your throne and who's, who's made an offering once for all. Pray, God, that we would see you as beautiful today and, God, that we would be encouraged and ex excited, Lord, because of what we see about you to follow you in a deeper and a more honest way. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, the way that I want to begin this morning is uh, just with my sermon title. I've titled this message, Jesus, Our Great High Priest. It's not that original, but that's what this text talks about. And so, um, really, when we talk about a priest, which is, which is, I think, what we need to understand what a priest is, I think this is where we can get confused pretty much right away, okay? Maybe you grew up in a church kind of like this. Maybe you've grown up here your whole life, and you'll, you'll look around, and you'll notice that there aren't any priests here in, in our congregation. It's okay to look around. That's all right, okay? But I, I've never seen a priest here in this church unless they came from the Catholic church, okay? But anyway, the, the, there's not been a priest here, and so, so maybe you've grown up thinking, oh, we don't need a priest, we just have a pastor, 
You know, our pastor teaches God's word to us, and, and that's how we hear God's word, and we, you know, he, he leads the church, and that's, that's just how it is. But, but I can just go to God and pray anytime, and, and I, can, I can come to him because he loves me, okay? Now, if that's you, which I think is all of us, there's nothing wrong to say anything about that. If that's us, maybe we need to have a deeper understanding today of what the role of a high priest is. Okay? Because there's something very significant about it today. Maybe you grew up on the opposite side where you came from maybe a, a Catholic background or an Eastern Orthodox background or maybe even an Anglican um, r- religious raising in, in those kind of uh, churches. And in order for you to come to God, you actually had to go through a priest. You had to go to confession. You had to confess your sins to someone, a, a, a man, and they had to then intercede to God on your behalf. And that, that's what you were taught, that you had to go through someone, and they actually had that title of a priest. Now, I think what you'll realize right away, as we've already read this text, is that something has happened which has changed how we approach God. And that's Jesus. Jesus has come, and we, we can approach God through him. And so when we talk about something like a, a you know, going through another man to approach God, what we realize is that that has also been done away with. That we can approach God through not, not just any man, any sinful man, but the man, Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, who, who, is, who has made a way for us to approach God. And so that, that, is, that is what we're going to be talking about today. Now, I think there's even a more subtle, subtle angle that we could even come at this and maybe this is you as well, because I think it was me also growing up. Before I became a pastor, I always, I always thought that the pastors and the elders were, were somehow closer connected to God than just the average person, okay? And, um, and after becoming a pastor, I, I realized after, after going to a lot of people's homes to, to just socialize and have a meal with them, usually what they would do, and I think out of respect, what they would do is they would, they would say, Pastor could you pray for us? <laughs> and, and, you know, inward, my feeling was, well, this, this is your home. Why, why don't you pray? You know, <laughs> I, you know that, that's what, and, and I know they were doing it out of respect, but, but I, I realized that there was something that sometimes when even, even people would ask me as a pastor to pray or some of our elders to pray, which is also biblical, it's okay, but somehow they would get this idea that we are closer connected to God in, in, in the role of interceding to God on someone's behalf. And that also is a false understanding of what it means to have Jesus as our high priest. And so I think we've nailed this all already in this, that we need to see Jesus as greater than any man to approach God. That we, we don't approach God through, through the work of any man, we approach God through the work of Jesus Christ. And that is what this passage is all about. Now, you may be wondering, why do we need someone to go to God? And that begins right at the beginning of Scripture, where we see that Adam and Eve walked with God in perfection. It says, it says that, that they walked with God and talked with God in the cool of the day as they, as they walked throughout the Garden of Eden. That's Genesis chapter 1, 2. And then we see um, later on in chapter 2 that something happened that broke that relationship with God. What happened? Adam and Eve sinned. They were, uh, Eve, was, Eve was deceived by the serpent, the devil, 
And uh, that, that serpent told her that, uh, you know, did, did God really say not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And um, because he said, gave her the, the idea that God was withholding something from them, saying that, that for, for he knows that when you eat of it on that day, um, you'll, you'll know good from evil. And so, so she took it in her ignorance, but then Adam then took it out of defiance and ate from that fruit wanting to become like God. And from that moment, when sin entered into the world and the curse was handed out, there was a separation between God and man. What you need to know about God that impacts this whole thing that we're going to get into is that God is holy. That means he is separate from us. He's separated from us. He is perfect in who he is. And what, what it means to be holy is part of, part of God's attribute is that he is not only completely holy, but he's completely just. And that means that, that he can't put up with wrong. He can't put up with wickedness. And, and we even see in our society today that there is an outcry for what? Justice, right? Do you know that that is something that God has placed within us? And that's a godly desire, right? Maybe the way we see it being played out, that is not godly at all, but that is a godly desire that God has placed within us, and it reflects who he is, us being made in the image of God. And so we see God in his justice could not just overlook sin, but sin demanded a punishment. It demanded a just, righteous judge to go and deal with that. And so as, as the curse for sin was being handed out in Genesis chapter, I think it's the end of chapter 2 and then 3, we see that God actually foreshadowed for us what was going to happen, that he would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, right? And then he would, he would, he would be doing that through bringing the Messiah, a Savior to this world. He would deal with his sin. So not only did he demand that justice, but he provided the answer to his justice in his own son. And so from, from Genesis chapter 2, all the way through the end of the Old Testament, what we see is this story of redemption, the story of God sending the Jewish people these symbols and signs and hints of what was going to come. And we see it through the, the, the killing of, of Abel. Abel offered a righteous sacrifice and Cain killed him, right? A picture of Christ. We saw it in, in uh, Noah, how, how all the earth was completely wicked and God said, I'm going to destroy this earth, but one man was found to be righteous and that man was Noah and he told Noah to build a boat and he saved his whole family when the floods came. A picture of the deliverance of Christ. All these things point to Jesus, an ultimate deliverer. We see it through Abraham. God promised Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We see God told him to take his only son, Isaac, and offer him on the altar. And this, this son willingly placed himself on the altar, and, and, and Abraham was going to bring down the knife in, in obedience to God. And what did God do? He provided a ram, a picture of a deliverer, Christ. Okay? Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, 400 years of slavery for these these promised people, these people that had been given a promise and they called out to God, God sent a deliverer in Moses, right? Pointing to the deliverance of Christ. What God was doing was he was giving them 
types and symbols and language for them to understand what a deliverer does, pointing them to the ultimate deliverer in Christ. And as Moses delivered these people out of Egypt in slavery, God brought them into the desert to, to a mountain called Horeb or Mount Sinai, and there he gave them the Ten Commandments, which was really just a revealing of their own sinfulness. God gave them these commands, and they realized right away they couldn't follow them. And so in order for them to be able to live rightly before a holy God, you'll, you'll read in the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, you'll read how God provided priests for them to intercede on behalf of the people that could not measure up to God's holy standard. And in a sense, we see ourselves in that same place. We are like faithless, unfaithful Israel that cannot measure up to God's standard. We need a high priest. We need someone to intercede on our behalf, to, to, to be the mediator between God and man. And that is who we see in this passage, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're with me here, let's, let's jump into this text of Hebrews chapter 5. And um, we're going we're gonna to just follow out um, the words um, verse by verse. We'll start in verse 1. And it begins by just kind of giving us this idea of what a high priest did back then. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men, um, from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, as we, as we um, get into verse 1, we just see the duties of a high priest, what this high priest was expected to do uh, as an intermediary between God and between man. He was to offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. But we learn more about this priest in verses 2 and 3, where it goes on to say that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now here we see something revealed that is actually very troubling. That this mediator between God and man is actually sinful himself. And in, in one part it's comforting is that he can, he can uh, identify with our proneness to sin and to, to not measuring up to the standard that God has given to us. But on the other hand, it's troubling because he has to first offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he can approach a holy God. We actually see in the book of uh, Leviticus in chapter 15, uh, in chapter 16, it says, um, talking about the priest Aaron, that um, it said, Aaron shall offer a bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And then he can go in and offer a sacrifice for the rest of the people. See, a priest wasn't without sin priest had sin that he had to deal with on his own before he could enter into the Holy of Holies, to that place that God provided as a picture of, of where he is. And so he, he, he was imperfect. He identified with sinners in that way. But as we go on, we see, we see more about this priest. At verse 4, it says that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. 
you may be wondering who this Aaron guy is, okay? Aaron was the first high priest that was chosen. Um, after God gave out the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, we see through, throughout the, the rest of the account there into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there was very, very specific calls that God made for how they were to then approach him. And uh, as, as a picture of probably the, the place where God dwells, they told, um, told Moses and Aaron to, to build him a house, build him a tent. In that tent, there was all, a bunch of different articles, which all had different kinds of meanings and symbolism to them. But they also told them, build, build me what they call an, an ark. And, and this was actually a, a, a box where they actually kept the Ten Commandments, and they kept, kept um, Aaron's staff, I think, that had budded, and some, some other things, I think some manna that they kept in there to remember um, God's deliverance of them from Egypt and his provision. But, but, but they kept this box inside a place that was separated by a curtain. And in order to go into the curtain, they could only go through there once a year. And, and in order to do that, this priest had to offer sacrifices first for himself. And uh, this, this priesthood was actually, not just any man could, could become a priest, it was actually had to be of the tribe of Levi. You remember Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph, who was enslaved in Egypt. He had another 11 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those tribes was Levi. And, and, and so you had to be of the tribe of Levi, of the house of Aaron, the first high priest. But you couldn't just be of his house, you had to be the firstborn of his house. So the firstborn son from generation to generation to generation was chosen by God to be the high priest. So you weren't elected into this position. No, God literally chose you by birth for this position. And so this is going to be important moving on for us to see who Jesus is. It says, no one takes this honor for himself. That's important. But only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, for this Jew Jewish audience, seeing Jesus as a high priest would have been difficult because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, of the household of Aaron. And that to them would have been a problem. And so let's see how, how the writer gives him credibility. Keep on moving. Verses <clears throat> 5 and 6. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2, verse 7 being quoted there. As he also says in another place, actually quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, he says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's stop there. This is confusing, guys. <laughs> and so if, if you don't get it right off offhand, I, I understand because uh, I, I spent some time with my wife, Precious, um, researching what's going on here. Like, what does this even mean? And, and, and we, we got into a pretty deep study. I encourage you guys to do it too, to, to understand who this man Melchizedek is and why it makes a difference. Now, I'll let you know right off the bat, Pastor Conover is going to cover this more in chapter 7, 8, and 9. And so I, I want to just give you like the, the highlights of why this makes a difference here in chapter 5. But this man Melchizedek is being referred to and uh, in order to understand Melchizedek 
and why this makes a difference in why Jesus was then chosen to be the high priest, we need to see who he is. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, and it's just verses 1 through 3. I'll just read them quick. It says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God continues a priest forever. Wow, what a guy. What a guy. Now, you can actually read about him in, in uh, the book of Genesis chapter 14. This was a historical account that happened. Abraham met this guy after delivering his, um, uh, what do you call it, son-in-law um, from, from a bunch of kings uh, that, that basically took all his possessions. He met Melchizedek, and this is what is said about him. That, that uh, he was, first of all, um, the translation of his name means king of righteousness, and he's also king of Salem, king of peace, okay? And so, so this man is a king priest. You get that? He's a king priest. Why is that important? You'll probably recognize from, from the structure of society that, that you don't see too many king priests because it's, uh, it's actually pretty dangerous um, mixing religious duty with civic duty, Right? Because if, if, if there was a king, that king was supposed to represent God to the people. And what was the priest to do? He was to represent the people to God, right? A king was to uphold the law and to, to, to give out the, the workings of, of justice. But a priest was there to, to do what? He was, he was to be compassionate and intercede on behalf of the guilty. And so what, what we see is that Melchizedek is being called a king priest back there. He's called the, the king of righteousness and the king of Salem, which is actually Salem is, is the original name for the city of Jerusalem, which means peace. And, and we'll realize also that uh, righteousness needs to come before we have peace. And so there, there's multiple ways that Melchizedek shows us in a, in a typological form who Jesus is was going to be in its truest form. It also, it also says about Melchizedek that, uh, and this is, this is where I think it's actually confusing, and I had to do some really deep study on this, is that it says he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What does that even mean? Was he just like, just, you know, he always existed and he never died? He didn't have parents? Is that what it means? I don't think that's what it means about Melchizedek. I think that, that when it says that he is without father or mother or genealogy, what it means is that they cannot look back and find who his father's 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 was. Okay? They don't have a record of that. They also don't have a record of when he was born or when he died. And so, symbolically, he kind of always existed. But in its truest form, what we see is that Jesus truly has eternally existed. 
He, he has no beginning. He has no end. He was ne never born, never, never died. I mean, uh, earthly, in an earthly way, he was. But he's, he's eternal. And, and what, what this meant when it says that, that Jesus is in a priesthood that's in the order of Melchizedek, what it means is that, that this, Mel, this Melchizedekian order happened when? Before, before the Levitical order of priests. That's the point that he's making. Saying Jesus is superior because he's part of this Melchizedekian order. He's, he's, he's before Aaron. He's before the Levitical priest. That makes him better. That, him, that makes him superior. That is who Jesus is. And so trust in him. The other thing that it means that I, that I think is so profound for us today is that as, as, as Melchizedek, you couldn't trace his genealogy, which meant that he, he didn't come from the tribe of, of Levi. It meant that he was before Levi. It means that he was not just a priest for the Jews, he was a priest for all. And that is who Jesus is as well. He's a priest for us all. Not just for his people, but for all people. That all can call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And so, in a nutshell, he's before, he's forever, and he's for all people. And that should give us great, great hope today. As we keep on going through, through uh, the rest of this passage in, in Hebrews, um, what we see uh, in, in verse 7, as we keep on reading, because we're going to have to wrap up, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through <clears throat> what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all, to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's back up to verse 7 a second. It's talking about Jesus offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. When do we remember that happening? In the garden, right? When, when out of obedience to God, he cried, cried out to God, and, and, and blood, was, blood came out in his sweat. That, that was intense, intense suffering that he went through, yet he, he cried out to God and said, not my will, but yours be done. And the question comes up sometimes at this point is, can Jesus actually identify with us as the Levitical high priest could? And the answer is, absolutely he can. I'm going to jump back to chapter 4 that, that we didn't really get through, but chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. You may be thinking, well, well, if he didn't give in to temptation, then he doesn't understand temptation. I'd say you're wrong. Because if you give in to temptation, you don't actually know how, how, how great that temptation can be if you would have resisted another hour, right? Jesus resisted his whole life. He knew the fullest extent of temptation, and he did not give in. You think he can identify? He can. He can. Not just with your temptation, he can identify with you in all ways. In all ways. That is our Savior. And here in chapter 9, 
sorry, chapter 5, verse 9, I believe is probably the key verse that I think we, we got we to gotta camp on and we got to stand on. 5, verse 9, it says this, and I think it's this foundation for the whole chapter. It says, and being made perfect, which Jesus didn't, didn't become perfect. He always was perfect, okay? But maybe through what he did, it was a perfect sacrifice, he became the source, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Really is reflective upon what Jesus even said about himself. He said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Today in this world, that is not a message that will be received well but we believe and we trust because of Jesus and who he is as our high priest that he is the only one that could make a way for us to God. What did he do? Let's remember what he did on the cross. As he was suffering and dying, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And at the time when he died, when he breathed his last breath, what happened in that temple? What happened? Do you remember? That veil was torn, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, opening that way into the presence of God, that there be no high priest, there be no man that can intercede for you on behalf of God, on, on your behalf, but we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf. That is joy, that is peace. And so he says this, he says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let me ask you a question. Are you depending on your high priest? Is he your one confidence today? Our merciful Savior who who satisfied the justice of God on our behalf, who went into the Holy of Holies and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. There's no other sacrifice that could do that. It says in, in uh, actually Hebrews chapter, um, chapter 9, which explains it all. It says, it says verse 27, and just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time to deal with sin, but to save those, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He dealt with our sin once for all. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather have an eternal priest or a temporary priest? Would you rather have a priest who can cover your sin or a priest who can cleanse your sin? Would you rather have a priest who can go to God but once a year on the Day of Atonement or that sits at the right hand of God interceding continually on your behalf? I know who my choice is, and it's Jesus Christ, my great high priest. How should our response be then? I'm going to just, as I said, back up to Hebrews 4, verses 14 and verse 16. It says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, here's our response, let us hold firmly, let us hold fast to our confession. Verse 16, we'll skip down. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and we might find grace to help in time of need. What's our response? Follower of Jesus, hold fast. Hold fast to your confession. Don't let, don't let these, these times of uncertainty uh, knock you off of, of holding fast to Jesus as your daily hope, your hope of salvation, your hope and your joy every single day. Hold fast to your confession. And if you don't know him, or maybe you haven't fully understood him, and you're realizing for the first time Jesus is our great high priest. He is our only way to God. It says this, let us then with confidence, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. What is mercy? It's God giving, giving to us, not giving to us what we do deserve. What we deserve is, is the wages of sin is death, right? That we may receive, receive mercy and grace. That's God giving to us what we don't deserve. That is his righteousness. So withholding us from, from our deserved punishment and giving us the righteousness that we don't deserve. Receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That to us is a great joy. And if you don't know him, why don't you call out to him today? Call out to that great high priest and say, Jesus, I need you. You are my righteousness. You are the only way to God. I place my faith in you today. And if, if you've already done that, why don't we just take glory and joy in that today? There's a song that I want to just uh, read some of the lines for you, and I don't have it up here with me. I, th I think they might even have it on the screen back there, but it's that, that song, Before the Throne of God Above. And it goes like this. Before the throne of God above, thank you, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look to see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just, this is beautiful, to, was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hidden with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Praise you, Jesus. Why don't we pray and thank God for this. God, we thank you. You are our great high priest. You are better. You are superior than any of these, these symbols, than any of these, these, these 
types that you put before us, God, you are the complete and perfect way. And so, God, we pray that we'd cling to you as sufficient today and tomorrow and this week and the rest of this year, God. We don't know what's ahead, but God, we know that you hold the future and you've made a way for us to enter into your presence with boldness, with confidence, to receive mercy and to find grace. Father, I pray that today, there's someone here that just is realizing for the first time, God, that they need you. They need to cling to you as their high priest. God, that they need your work done on the cross to satisfy the justice of yourself. God, that they reach out to you today and say, Lord Jesus, would you save me? And God, as they do that, would that